0: So money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500. And that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit Wealthfront.com forward slash money. Hey, welcome back to So Money, everyone. How are you? Hope you're doing great. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi, and very excited for today's guest because he's going to solve all of our negotiation blunders and teach us how to actually maybe achieve world peace. Dan Shapiro is here. He's the founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program. Dan has his PhD, and he is a world-renowned expert on conflict resolution, From advising leaders of war-torn countries to working with senior executives and families in crisis, Dan has helped thousands of organizations and individuals solve the problems that divide us. And he recently published a book. It's entitled Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. One of the first questions I asked Dan was, how do you get that raise once and for all? Let's talk about the conflict in the workplace, and sometimes that's the conflict we have with our salary. What about the most important and effective way to resolve conflicts over money in your marriage? And how to negotiate with people who are just being downright irrational? I mean, how do you even begin? He has all the answers and more. Here's Dan Shapiro. Dan Shapiro. Dan Shapiro, welcome to So Money, ready to solve all of our conflicts, right?
1: Amen. It's good to be here with you, Farnoosh.
0: I'm so happy to connect with you. I read an article where you were quoted in this article on Business Insider about how to resolve conflict at work, specifically if you're conflicted about your salary and you want to ask for that raise. It's just one of those emotionally overwhelming situations that we often find ourselves in, and it's hard to really uh, be rational. And then, of course, your negotiation – Uh, skills and advice is not just for people on the job, but in politics, in conflict resolution overseas, and even in your home when you have battles with your spouse. Would love to start with how you became the expert in conflict negotiation and conflict resolution, Dan. I mean, you teach at Harvard. You've written your new book is called negotiating the non-negotiable, how to resolve your most emotionally charged conflicts. Were you the child on the playground that was The Switzerland, (laughs) you were were giving everybody the, you know, the how to and the the conflict resolver on the playground.
1: You know, I I was something of the Switzerland on the playground, although I cannot, you know, I'm by no means perfect, you know. Um, No, but I mean, I was always, I mean, as you asked the question, I was thinking about it. I was always sort of connected to the various different circles within, you know, within elementary and middle and high school, never the center of the circle. So not the most popular, but always sort of able to relate to people within each of the different circles. So in that sense, an intermediary almost, you know, maybe by nature, I'd suppose, um, but that, you know, definitely some truth to that, you know, uh, and, and then my own work, my my real substantive work in conflict resolution began in the late 80s, early 90s. I was working in Eastern Central Europe, helping to share tools of conflict resolution as that part of the world was changing from a closed to an open society.
0: From your perspective, your book is called "Negotiating but non-negotiable. Is that to say that we can have world peace, we can have harmony at work, we can have harmony at home, regardless of whatever the obstacles may be?
1: My research has shown that the single biggest problem in so many of these conflicts It's not that they're impossible to resolve, but that they feel non-negotiable, which means, in other words, it's a mindset that we get into, a mindset that in my book, I call it the tribe's effect. When all of a sudden, no matter whether you're negotiating with your romantic partner or it's Israelis and Palestinians negotiating, all of a sudden that other person becomes conceived of as an adversary, as the enemy. And it's that mindset that is that gets very entrenched but it's also that mindset that one can change.
0: So how do you change the mindset? How do I look at my husband when he hasn't done the dishes, as you wrote about <laughs> in Oprah magazine recently? Yeah. Something as small of a conflict as that, but in the moment, right? He's my yeah. adversary because he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And it's a small problem, but it's maybe indicative of a bigger pattern of things. And I just want to fight and it's midnight. How <laughs> do I, how do I resolve this and go to bed not angry? Mm.
1: Yeah, no, I think in in the book, what I talk about are five emotional forces that tend to pull us toward divisive thinking. So these forces, most likely, at least some of them are acting on you. You may not even know it. And they're making the relationship with your husband more difficult. Uh, Let me give you one example. So one of the concepts is what I call vertigo. So vertigo is that experience you get when you get so emotionally consumed in a conflict that you cannot think of anything else but that conflict and that evil other person be it husband wife whatever it might be you know but and that evil other person it's as though you are in the midst of an emotional tornado the world you know the, the walls are swirling around you and you cannot see outside of it that's vertigo
0: that that's also what happens when you start shaking <laughs> during a yes. fight that's what I Oh
1: thinking. yeah no no totally yeah. and it's also the, the you know it, and and one can often see that little tornado coming. And, and um, the big question then to ask is, do I really want to go there? You know, so what kind of conversation do I want to have in your case with, with your husband about how to deal with those dishes? You know, do you want it to be a spiraling conflict? That's getting out of control, or do you want to approach it more from, uh, You know, a a place of mutual understanding saying, you know, look, I'm frustrated right now. You said you were going to do this. Help me understand what was going on from your perspective. You don't need to get rid of the anger, but you don't necessarily need to avoid to to fall prey to vertigo, to that spinning circle, you know, spiral.
0: You become your worst enemy.
1: You can become your worst enemy. And, And all of these emotional forces, they're actually there to protect you. You feel rightly upset. Your husband did not do those dishes. You know, and so vertigo comes in as one example. It gives you this extra energy to fight for your cause. And yet, as you start to assert yourself, perhaps too forcefully, all of a sudden, your husband's response is, you don't understand my situation. I just got home at 11 o'clock tonight and blah, blah, blah. You know, so each has validity to their perspective. The dangers to, to not, you know, the danger is falling prey to some of these emotional forces that, that divide us rather than unite us.
0: Another emotional force you identify in the book is repetition, uh repetition compulsion.
1: So this is the I the experience we all have when we repeat the same dysfunctional patterns of behavior again and again and again and again. So this is, you know, the 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 couples at home, colleagues at work who get predictably into the same difficult conversations again and again and again and again and they don't know how to get out. That's the repetition compulsion, and it's powerful. For example, I have a very good friend who was in the midst of, what, like a 25-year emotionally abusive relationship. And finally, 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 about a month and a half ago, two months ago, she finally just out of the blue packed her bags, walked out, and went with family in Washington, D.C., And what does she do every single day? As she's in Washington, D.C., she suddenly starts obsessing. Should I go back? She calls him every day. Uh, And meanwhile, the entire family, all of her friends, myself included, say, Don't go back. It doesn't make sense. Don't go back. And about three weeks ago, what does she do? She goes back. This is the repetition compulsion. We feel pulled to repeat behaviors that we know don't make sense for us, they're self sabotaging. And yet it's often so difficult to break free of these patterns.
0: Would love to talk about some ways we can break through our emotional barriers to resolve conflict at work and then with our money, too. So yeah. first at work, I think the biggest battle that we may have is feeling undervalued at work. We're not making as much as we, we'd like or as much as we know we can earn because other cl- colleagues are making more than us. Yes. How do you go in for the ask and, and get what you want in that negotiation?
1: I think the, it's, uh, the first thing you want to do is to prepare and to prepare carefully and systematically for walking in. I mean, who is the decision maker? So is the decision maker my boss? And what Will it take for my boss to say yes? More importantly, why might my boss say no? Who is my boss responsive to? Where is my boss going to get those extra funds to give me a 5% raise? Who does my boss need to talk to? And what is some sort of invitation I could suggest to my boss that would allow him or her to more effectively navigate within that decision system as well? So big question number one, what are your boss's interests Why should your boss say yes to your request? Uh, Point two on preparation. Don't walk in with just a random percentage raise that you want. You know, I want a 5% or a 10% raise. I'm essential to the company. What is that number based on? Look for some sort of market standard. And there's a lot of information now on the internet, but something that can allow you to have a persuasive argument to your boss. Why this number? Why not that? Look, I've done my market research. Everybody in this junior position that I'm in, you know, in the company for five years at the three other competitor companies. If they've been on the job for three years, they get about a five percent to six percent raise. I'm only asking for the five here. You know, I recognize I, you know, I, I'm somewhat new still. You suddenly have some sort of objective standard. That makes your argument more compelling, fair. It makes it hard to say no to.
0: Should you ask for more than what you actually want, though, because you have to leave room for negotiation?
1: I mean, I I, I, I suppose it makes sense to have put some latitude there. Maybe don't start with the 5%, start with the 7 and your boss can feel some success coming back and saying, ha, I got you down to 5 On the other hand, I think there's a danger in approaching the situation like a positional battle. I have my position. You have your position because it, it, you start to lose a sense of fairness through that process. So that my my general advice would be to try and draw upon some legitimate standards that are out there. It's much more persuasive.
0: There's even been some academic studies out of Harvard that look at the gender differences in negotiating at work. Do you does your work also mirror that or or find truth in that that there should that usually as a woman there's a different Strategy that works best because of your gender, and vi- and also for men.
1: I mean, there's there's very compelling research out there, and, and quite you know, um, what's the word? Uh, not disappointing, but but you know, it, it, sobering. It, sobering. <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. It is absolutely sobering uh, research that shows substantial differences over time in the salaries of men versus women, and it often goes right back to those first salary negotiations when the man tends to ask for more, push a little bit harder, be a little bit more assertive. The woman, perhaps more interested in building a good relationship, doesn't ask at the beginning. And then over the course of time, it's some three-fourths of a million dollars by the end of a person's career difference. So, you know, I I think, you know, stereotyping the skill set of men and women if the man's more assertive and the woman has a better ability to navigate the relationship, who's right? I would argue they're both right. you know I want the male or female negotiator to build that good relationship and to be assertive. no matter your gender. So if the woman walks in and is somewhat fearful about asking for a bit more in terms of the initial salary or a salary or a promotion, my sense, practice. You know, sit with a friend the day before that interview or that conversation, practice with a friend, have your friend be the boss and have the boss maybe even be a little jerky. You know, no, we can't do the raise. What are you going to say? How are you going to continue to assert to make sure that your interests get met and of course that the boss's interests get met as well?
0: In the Business Insider piece, you actually recommend that you, as the person seeking the raise, play the role of boss, of manager, because perhaps that's what ultimately is going to give you the sense of empathy. And how important is empathy when it comes to negotiation?
1: Well, I, 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 I this is the single most powerful thing I I think I do when working with CEOs, with heads of state, with distressed families, is to literally have them sit in another seat and pretend to be the other person with whom they're negotiating. Or negotiating against. Because once I understand the mindset of that other person empathically, really feel what they're feeling. I am much more able to influence them because I know, I know where they're coming from. I understand where their mind is at. Now I can change it. I think empathy to your point is essential. Uh, and and the way I I see it, it boils down to one single concept, appreciation. We all want to feel appreciated. You said it at the beginning of our conversation. We want to feel heard and understood. And, and we all want to feel that. The problem, I think, whether it's at work or at home with one spouse, is that each of us in a conflict desperately wants to feel appreciated by the other person, but neither of us wants to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to appreciate you until you appreciate me. You say the same thing. We're now in a stalemate. But that offers you the opportunity because if if only you, one person in that relationship, works to appreciate the other side, they now feel heard and they're more likely to put down their window and, and listen to you.
0: Right. It can be contagious.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So many couples argue about money. For good reason, we come to the relationship often with different money patterns, money histories, relationship with our, our own relationship with money may differ. What's the, the, the wrong thing that we always do when it comes to money and relationships? We know we, we argue about it all the time. What is it that we just aren't able to hear each other out? We don't have the empathy because sometimes it's not even about the money.
1: My sense is if a couple or a family is fighting about money, they're not fighting about money. (laughs) I would dare say they're always, if not almost always, fighting about something that's deeper going on and emotional. One of the factors that I found most substantial is autonomy. So autonomy is the freedom to make decisions without somebody else telling you what to do. And let's say in a marriage... Each partner in that marriage wants some freedom to make decisions over money without the other person telling them what to do. You know, culture might come into this to some degree, but generally I think this is true. Uh, and all of a sudden, if one spouse goes out and, you know, spends $200 on some nice new clothes or a new, uh, a new car even, you know, and the other says, you did that? And, and you didn't even tell me you were going to do that? This isn't just a conflict about money. This is a conflict about autonomy. Who has the freedom in the relationship to make decisions about money? And, and, and one simple way to get around this or to deal with this, if it's a couple's relationship, a family situation, might be for the couple to simply sit down and to think through what they need to do, how they should make those decisions about money. So in other words, $100 or less, you or I, we can go out and spend that if we want. We don't need to even talk to the other about it. Anything more than a hundred or let's say two hundred to five hundred dollars. Let's say we need to consult. So I need to consult you before I buy that nice new mink coat. You need to consult me before you buy that new office desk for home. And then anything that becomes extremely substantial within the financial, um, realm, say five hundred dollars or more, whatever it is. My notion is that might be a third bucket negotiating. We need to talk about it and decide are we really going to renovate the kitchen in our home or not? And that becomes a joint decision. I think the problem is when people mix up these buckets, you know, someone buys the new car without consulting the other. Someone, uh, you know, makes a more expensive purchase and the other feels like, wait a minute, why didn't you tell me about that? This is something for our home, not your home.
0: Right. I think it's so important now as couples are getting married later in life. And by the time we get married, we've had such a a run with our own personal financial life. We've been used to making our our own choices, having that financial freedom and autonomy. One of the things I often suggest too, in addition, you have great suggestions. I would also add, you know, have your own separate account Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be a Swiss bank account. You know, it could just be a, a siloed account under your joint bank. And it's just a way for you to be able to put money in, uh, put it aside and also take out money without feeling like you have to, quote, unquote, ask for permission. Yes. And this is just your, your personal slush fund. So I completely agree. Yep.
1: I think that's a brilliant idea. You know, and, and as we talk, you make me think about a story that happened a long time ago. Um, at the time, I was living in Massachusetts, Amherst, small town, and dating this woman for about six months. I wasn't yet married. So uh, and I was about to go off to do a workshop in Eastern Europe. Before I left, I simply asked my then-girlfriend, Mia, would you mind looking after my apartment while I'm gone? She said, fine. I said, great. Come back about two weeks later, walk into my apartment, and I see that it is almost completely renovated. (laughs) So almost everything had been changed. The sofa, different. The pictures on the wall, different. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and on, and my autonomy felt impinged. Look, this is my apartment. This is not yours I start changing it back to the way it was, but, but here's the weird part. The weird part is this apartment, the way that Mia had designed it, it looked a hundred times better. She had a much better sense of style than I did. And yet I'm turning it back to the way it was before. Why? Because it's not about the content. It's about the process. Mm-hmm. You know my autonomy felt impinged and of course she walks in 20 minutes later she doesn't feel appreciated her autonomy feels impinged we had a, you know a nice little argument there i did not have that word autonomy in my vocabulary then in my you know conceptual language but this is i think a huge problem when it comes to money you can even i mean imagine the situation someone your husband let's say let's for let's say your husband puts together a wonderful surprise party for you and buys you a new $50,000, I don't know, BMW as a surprise and so on. And all of this happens, but, and you get there and it's all there. As exciting as this might be, you might also have this slight frustration. Wait a minute, this is big money and you did not consult me. That's autonomy. So in other words, even if somebody is doing something positive for you, if your autonomy doesn't feel respected, it can feel upsetting. So, for example, family businesses. I was just working with some this weekend. Uh, if the children don't feel that they're being consulted and how the money might be transferred to them over time with a you know, multi-generational family, they might feel upset even if they're getting the money. This is autonomy. And, and the easiest way to deal with it around money, ACBD. Always consult before deciding, especially around decisions of money that you know will be important to that other person.
0: Right. And even if you know what the answer is going to be, even if you know your partner is going to be in agreement with you, it's that process of asking. It's the showing the respect and saying, what do you think, yes. um, can make the world a difference?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's even if you know what they're thinking, my sense is you don't a 100% right. know because you don't know whether they might have just written a check for, you know, $100,000, spent all of your savings on something else. <laughs> now, you know, you just bought the surprise $50,000 BMW, you know, welcome to family chaos. You know, right. So my sense is you can always learn. Consulting is a nice way to learn and you still can make the decision you want.
0: What keeps you continuously curious in your space? I mean, the
1: opportunity to talk to people like you and to explore this concept from a hundred different perspectives. I mean, so my work really has taken me both around the world, and I feel utterly fortunate and humbled by it, and also to get to meet a whole variety of different people. So working during the war and the imploding Yugoslavia around issues of conflict to working later on with heads of state and business leaders And civil society leaders, everybody is dealing with conflict. Everybody's dealing with negotiation. What keeps me alive is both being able to develop new ideas that can help people and then working with a whole variety of different people to try and spread those ideas.
0: Are there any current situations that you have tried to help that you just feel are not negotiable?
1: Yeah, I mean, there certainly are some situations that are non-negotiable you know, I mean, God forbid somebody with a gun walks into somebody else's office and starts shooting, you know, that might be a better time to run than to try and negotiate. So so I think there are certain situations that are non-negotiable. My whole area of research and the focus of my practical work is how do you help people deal with the emotional and the identity-based dimensions of conflict? So how do you deal with the, the real roots of conflict? And here there's much more possibility than people think. Uh, There are tons of books out there on how to negotiate more effectively. And my sense is some are very good and some are quick fixes. You know, here's the magic tools. My Negotiating the non-negotiable, it is not a quick fix. It's a real fix. You know, so how do you deal with the emotional roots of conflict? To to give you one other example, um, in, in my book, there's a whole chapter on taboos. And when I think of the subject of your show, it's so relevant because it's often taboo to talk about money, whether it's trying to ask for the raise at work or to talk even about money at home with your aging parents or your your, your growing up kids. It becomes like a social prohibition. It can feel dangerous to almost talk about And yet, if you don't talk about these issues that you so wonderfully talk about on your show you can have the danger of people making very dysfunctional decisions. So I, yeah, yeah, sorry.
0: No, it's, it's a, it's real. It's valid points. Need a website. Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide. Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. So if you understand that what you're struggling with is a taboo, how do you break through that, given that you might not be supported in your environment because everyone else believes it's a taboo and you are the crazy one now who's bringing it up?
1: Right. So I, there's, in, in my book, I talk about a basic system, ACT, ACT, three ways to deal with taboos. One, do you want to just accept it? You know, so, it, you know, let's taking away from money. Let's say mom has a drinking problem, you know, so I might realize, boy, if I raise this issue with mom... She's going to threaten to kill herself again, and that does neither of us any good. So I'm just going to accept the taboo. I'm not going to talk about it. That's one possibility. Two, you can chisel it away. That's the C. The idea here is I'm not going to probably talk directly with mom, but let me talk to a doctor, you know, or, or someone like that and say to the doctor, look, I think my mother's really, really drinking too much right now. I'm worried about her health. When she comes in next week, do you think you might privately be able to talk with her about that? That's chiseling away. And the T is tearing it down, tearing down that taboo. That's, you know, mom, we've all come. We're confronting you right now. You have a problem. We're scared for you. So there are three different ways to deal with taboos. If you do want to break a taboo and talk about it around money, for example, the first thing to do might be to try and establish some sort of safe, environment. You know, just saying, look, can I talk to you, Farnoosh, confidentially for just a few minutes about something that's really been bothering me? And you can say, well, Well, it's something about the money. You can say yes or maybe or no, but I'm trying to establish some sort of safe environment where we can start to talk about an issue that otherwise would be very dangerous to talk about.
0: So it sounds like in all negotiations, it takes two. And you might come to the table with all this awareness around empathy and autonomy and wanting to create a safe environment. But ultimately, that other person needs to be in agreement. How do you get the other person to see your perspective?
1: No, it's a, it's a wonderful question. It only takes one. It only takes really? one to make the difference. Let me give you an example. Part of the work I do is working with hostage negotiators. And they're often dealing with someone who is extremely volatile on the other side. Most people in the world would consider that person on the other side irrational. They're going to kill a child. They're going to kill the colleague. They have a gun. Ah. And it only takes one. It takes the ability for that hostage negotiator to listen extremely effectively, to appreciate that other side's perspective to the extent that that other side feels heard, feels understood, And the moment that happens, all of a sudden, it's no longer me versus you, but it's the two of us thinking through the same problem in front of us. You know, so, wow, your wife divorced you. You haven't seen the kid that you now have in the room with you for the you haven't seen this kid in five years. You're threatening to kill your own child unless your wife gives you more uh, opportunity to do so. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Help me understand more. And all of a sudden, it only takes that one to build that partnership between both sides, even in extreme situations.
0: So, when you hear on the news and, and you read in the papers that you know certain organizations, let's say ISIS, you know, like we won't even entertain their demands, we won't even entertain or listen to what they need. Is that the wrong approach?
1: Well, I'm not sure that's totally true. Yeah, what w- in terms of what's actually happening? I think at a very formal level. The United States government is not acknowledging or recognizing ISIS. I don't know any facts beyond that, but my hunch would be that there are are some people who are at least through third party you know, channels are trying to connect with some of those people. And if that's not true, I would hope that that should, you know, it should be happening because I, I, you know, if if, I, I wouldn't want a formal U.S. representative to be meeting formally with ISIS representatives, that gives too much legitimacy to a terrorist organization. On the other hand, if there's some way that you can get some lower level person who has connections to the U.S. government, who has some ability to connect with people in the ISIS organization, now you can start to learn what do they really want? You know, is their interest just in committing, you know, reprehensible violence toward innocent people? My hunch is there's something more there. What are their political interests? What are their social interests? Why are 14-year-olds joining this organization? What are their interests? And once we can understand what those interests are, we're in a much better place to build policies that can effectively influence, you know, the, the, um, the degradation of ISIS,
0: you know, and Dance, in hearing you, it sounds like a lot of this is also having patience, which can be very difficult in this era. It is.
1: Well, I, I certainly in a place like the Middle East, um, one of my somebody who I've worked with to some degree, the, um, uh, the, the, the chief negotiator for the Palestinian Authority, uh, he wrote a book recently offering a number of principles to effective negotiating in the Middle East. Just as you say, patience was one of those big principles. I think patience, on the other hand, doesn't mean doing nothing. I think there is always something you can do to make yourself a more effective negotiator and conflict resolver. For example, you just simply observing, what are my fights typically like with my spouse or with my colleague at work? What's the pattern look like? And then asking yourself, what is one behavior that you personally might change? To change that behavioral pattern, that's power. You know, now it might not solve the whole problem that might take two years, but tomorrow you can do something that can start moving that relationship in a better direction.
0: What have you learned from writing this book? I always ask authors, you know, after you have spent so much time researching and writing the book and now publishing it and marketing it, what's been the biggest lesson learned from publishing this book?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I, I, I honestly have learned so much through publishing this book there's a, one chapter, for example, is on how do you negotiate the sacred? How do you negotiate those issues that are most important and meaningful in your life, whether religious or not? And writing that chapter took I, what, at least a year or two unto itself. Really? Just trying to understand what is, what is the sacred? How do you understand what this thing is? And is it possible to negotiate the sacred? Because what I, what I realized was that the sacred, by definition, it has infinite value. You know, try and qua- how can I try and quantify the value of my children, you know, or my love for my spouse or my parents or something like that? You can't. It's infinite. It's non-quantifiable. And yet, how do you then negotiate it? Can you negotiate things that people hold as sacred, whether sacred land or sacred beliefs? And I came to the conclusion that it is possible— you know but but I mean, a lot of learning in that process and how it might be possible to negotiate I mean, you have a husband and wife, uh two spouses of different uh religious backgrounds. How do they negotiate raising the kids? It's a sacred problem, but there are ways to deal with this. It wasn't apparent to me before writing the back book after writing the book, and as writing it, you know the ideas started to um to appear.
0: And so can you give us a clue? (laughs) How do we do this? I know many families that are of split religions and they are living in harmony. So it can be done, obviously. Oh, it
1: absolutely can be done. And some do it wonderfully. Some do it terribly. And probably many are in between. Um, But but one way to do it is simply to become more aware of what that other side holds as sacred and why they hold it as sacred. So in the book, I offer the example of – of um, a couple. The, one of the spouses is Jewish. The other is um, a Christian. <clears throat> and the, the, the um, Christian spouse wanted a Christmas tree in the home. The Jewish spouse said, oh my gosh, no way. Now they could have simply had a positional battle over that, you know, for, for years and divorced over it. Instead, they sat down and really tried to understand why do you want the tree in the house? And the Christian spouse, she said, well, Ever since I've been young, there's always been a Christmas tree in our home. I was never, you know, I never grew up very religious, but it means family to me. It symbolizes family. Why do you not want it? And the husband says, you know what? My grandparents, the Jewish grandparents, would, would 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 have disowned me if they knew that I had something of, of a different religion in my home, that I'm not loyal to my own heritage. Very different sacred reasons. And once they started talking about that, they realized there were possibilities for living together that had not been clear before. And what they ended up doing was over Christmas, every Christmas, they would celebrate it in the mother-in-law's home who had a Christmas tree. And they indeed celebrated Christmas Christmas there with the tree, but there was no Christmas tree at home.
0: See, now that to me, I feel like I want to respect that. But in in some other cases, you might be faced with what you consider to be an irrational irrationality. How do you how do you make that work?
1: Yeah, no, no. It's it's a wonderful question. And I'm smiling now because I literally just this weekend I was working with about 100 family business owners uh, and I asked all of them, can I have a show of hands? How many of you recently have negotiated with somebody irrational, you know, even within your family, a hundred people, a hundred hands are raised. <laughs> Question number t- two, show of hands. How many of you believe that you have ever been irrational when you negotiated?
0: No one, one hand
1: barely goes <laughs> up. You know? I mean, this is what I, you know, what I mentioned earlier and I call the tribe's effect. Yeah. It is this mindset of us versus them in a conflict. And and there's some basic symptoms to it. Symptom number one, you know, think about a recent, that recent conflict in your mind that you're talking about, whether with your husband or otherwise. Symptom one, we start to see the conflict as adversarial. It's me versus you. Point number two to the tribe's effect to this mindset is that self-righteousness. I believe my perspective is absolutely right and legitimate and my husband or wife, I believe your perspective is absolutely wrong and you're crazy. <laughs> you
0: <know? laughs> so clearly I've learned nothing in the last 35 minutes. No, 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 no. <laughs> and, and,
1: and and point number three is that it becomes a closed system. So I'm going to defend my perspective to no ends and I'm not going to inquire curiously about yours. And this is a mindset. And the good thing is, is that once you are aware that you're in the mindset you can move out of it and start to recognize, oh, wait a minute. You know what? It's not in this marriage. It's not who's winning and who's losing. Ha, you know, I won over the dishes this time. You know, the moment the marriage starts keeping score, that marriage is in trouble. Uh, you want in a family system and an organizational system, you want people working side by side together. It's not me versus you, my spouse. It's the two of us facing the same shared problem. You're not the problem. I'm not the problem. How are we going to deal with this issue of dishes and this issue of time that we want to spend together or how to divide up the project management duties at work? It's not me versus you, it's us. That's the critical mind shift. Moving from the tribe's effect to a communal or cooperative mindset, the two of us working together on the same shared problem. You know, and we've seen the impact of this mind shift work effectively in in extremely difficult circumstances. Uh, It's not necessarily easy there. I think you're right. It is the promised land, but it is absolutely possible to do.
0: Well, I'm going to work hard to get there.
1: (laughs) No, but I, I mean, at a core, I think the most single powerful piece of advice is to appreciate that other side's perspective. To truly understand and see the value in that other side's perspective and to let them know, you know, if, if your husband follows that advice, if you do, if I do, if my wife, does, if we all do, that is real power. Yes. It, it sounds soft and easy. It is incredibly hard to it's do hard. it, but that's the real power.
0: Yeah. That's the power patience, respect, empathy. And I love what you said about autonomy. It's so true. It's so mm. true. And we, pra- we try to practice it in in our marriage as well thank you so much dan i really appreciate your advice and the book is called negotiating the non-negotiable how to resolve your most emotionally charged conflicts congratulations on accomplishing that book
1: well thank you so much and good luck and to your husband thank you for listening as well
0: (laughs) (laughs) he appreciates it thank you dan
1: no thank you it's an honor to be on your show
0: that's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Dan, his website is danshapiroglobal.com. His book, again, is called Negotiating the Non-Negotiable. All this over at somoneypodcast.com where you can download the audio, read the transcript, leave a comment. And also, if you have a question for me, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for the Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in. Hope your day is so money.